Welcome back, everybody. I missed last week, but want to continue talking about essays from Rabbi Sachs's book, Studies in Spirituality. This week's Parsha is Parsha Miketz, and the title of Rabbi Sachs's essay is To Wait Without Despair. So Rabbi Sachs starts off with referencing last week's Parsha about the childhood of Joseph and focusing not on what happened, but on who made events happen. And throughout the entire roller coaster of Joseph's early life, he's described in a very passive uh, form. He's not really the shaper of events. Events happen to him. It's his father who loves him and gave him the coat. It's his brothers who envied and hated him. They're the ones that plotted to kill him and throw him in a pit. He was sold as a slave. In Potiphar's house, he rose to a position of seniority. But the text goes out of the way to say that it wasn't because of Joseph itself, himself that led to this rise in position. It was because of God. And it says here in Genesis chapter 39, verse 2 and 3, God was with Joseph and he became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that God was with him and that God caused all that he did to prosper in his hands. So it's clear here that Joseph is a participant in events. Later, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. And again, Joseph is, Joseph is passive, not active. He does not seek her. She sought him. And what happens? He gets accused falsely and goes to prison. And in prison, again, he rises to become a leader of the prison. But in the Torah, if you look in the Torah, again, it, it references how God was, with Mo, God was with Joseph and showed him kindness and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. Again, he was being passively acted on. And this is unusual because nowhere else in Tanakh is someone demonstrated in such a passive form where whatever happens to Joseph is a result of someone else's deed, whether it be his father, his brothers, his master wife, the, chi the chief jailer, or even God himself. Joseph is, as Rabbi Sachs says, the ball thrown by hands other than his own. But then at the end of last week's Parsha, for the first time, Joseph takes fate in his own hands when he interprets a dream for the butler. And he asks the butler to bring his case to the attention of Pharaoh. He tells the butler, remember me when it is well with you. Please do me the kindness to make mention of me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this place. For indeed, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should have put me into prison. So, but what happens? We're left in a cliffhanger at the end of the week's end of the Parsha, but the chief cupbearer, the butler, did not remember Joseph and forgot him. And we wait until this week's Parsha. Now, if you remember, historically, the printing press is only five, six hundred years old. Before that, people weren't able to so easily follow along with the saga of the Parshas. So if you were in synagogue a thousand years ago and you might not have your own copy of the Bible at home, you'd be listening this week's Parsha and be left in a cliffhanger with Joseph rotting in his cell. But what happens at the beginning after, after the end of this long break, after this cliffhanger, this Parsha begins by saying that two whole years later, Joseph's remembered by Pharaoh after he has a dream and he's released from prison. 
So what is this telling us? What's this cliffhanger teaching us? Well, it tells us that God answers our prayers, but often not when we thought or how we thought. It's telling us something fundamental about the relationship between our dreams and our achievements. Joseph was the great dreamer of the Torah, and his dreams came true for the most part, but not in the way he or anyone else could have anticipated. At the end of the previous Parsha, he's in prison, looked at in an untenable situation, but yet, after a week of waiting for this Parsha to be read, we, we discover that Joseph, after a two-year stead, is released. And what does he do? He takes the first independent action. He pleads with the butler to remember him so he could be released. And while that took time, ultimately, it came to fruition. So again, there is no achievement without effort. This is the first principle. If you look at Noah from the flood, it was Noah who built the ark, even though God saved him. God promised Abraham, Abraham the land, but he first had to buy the, the first piece himself when he purchased the cave of Machpelah to bury his, his wife. God promised the Israelites the land, but they had to fight battles to earn it. Joseph became a leader as he dreamed he would. But first, he had to hone his skills, first in Potiphar's house, then in prison. When, when God assures us that something will happen, it will not happen without our effort. And a divine promise is not a substitute for human responsibility. Instead, it's a call to responsibility. But we also have to remember that our own effort's not enough. We need the help of heaven. We need humility to acknowledge that we're dependent on forces that are not under our control. And out of that humility, we can develop patience. If you look at people who have worked hard, they have an unusual combination of characteristics. First off, well, I, I should say people who have achieved great things. What, what, are they, what are their characteristics? Well, first off, they work hard. They practice. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about I think it was something like 10,000 hours of intensive practice, intentional practice to be an expert at something. So if you want to be truly great at something, you have to work at it, you have to strive, you have to repeat, you have to focus. But often that's not enough because we're not the only one that writes our script. It's not our effort alone that results in, that determines the outcome. So what else do we do? We pray and we hope that God answers our prayers and we know he does, but not always when or how we expect him to do so. And sometimes the answer is not what we wanted, and we don't understand the reason why. In the tractate of, the, of Nida in the Talmud, page 70b, it says, What should you do to become rich? The answer, work hard and behave honestly. But the Talmud says that many people have tried this and did not become rich. And then the response is, you must pray to God from whom all wealth comes. So then the Talmud says, well, why work hard? Well, the Talmud says, one without the other is insufficient. We need both, human effort and divine favor. So we have to be patient and yet impatient. Impatient with ourselves, but patient in waiting for God to bless our endeavor. So as we went through the week-long delay between last week with Joseph's failed attempt to get out of jail 
and his eventual success this week, which in real life was two years, it teaches us a delicate balance that if we work hard enough, God grants us success, but often not on the timeline that we expect or want, and maybe not even the way we hope. It's not when we want, but rather when the time is right, and only God knows that. So hopefully that gives us hope that just like Joseph, our dreams can come true as well. Hope everyone has a great week. Talk to you soon. Welcome back. We are studying Parsha Vayigash from Rabbi Sachs' book, Studies in Spirituality, and the title of this week's essay is called Reframing. So Rabbi Sachs begins commenting on Maimonides, who called the ideal type of human being a sage a rof nefashot, a healer of souls. So today, if you were going to apply that term, a healer of souls, you could call it a psychotherapist from the Greek word psyche, which means soul, and therapia, which means healing. So if you look at all these soul healers in modern times, what's amazing is how many of them, while not necessarily religious, happen to be Jewish. All the, many of the early psychoanalysts from Sigmund Freud on down were Jewish. Um, if you look at all types of fields in psychology, there's um, Bruno Bettelheim in child psychology, Leon Festinger in cognitive dissonance, Maslow from famous Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, more recently Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky who gave us the field of behavioral economics. But the three psychologists that Rabbi Sachs feels are the most important Jewish contributions came from Viktor Frankl, Aaron Beck, and Morton Seligman. Frankl created the method known as logotherapy, which was based on the search for meaning. Beck helped create cognitive behavioral therapy, which is one of the most successful forms of treatment. And Seligman gave us positive psychology. That is a psychology that's not just a cure for depression, but a means of achieving happiness and acquiring optimism. Now these different approaches have one thing in common. They're all based on the belief that if we change what we think, the way we think, we will change the way we feel, which is actually set out much earlier in Chabad Hasidim, Chabad Hasidism, uh, by in uh, Rabbi Shnuel Zaman of Liadi's Tanya. So if we change the way we think, we will change the way we feel. And this was actually a revolutionary idea because there were many who felt that our character was based on genetic factors and others who feel that our emotional life is governed by our childhood experiences and our unconscious drive. There's Pavlov who felt that human behavior was based on conditioning. But all these theories have something in common. The fact that our inner freedom is, is constricted. Who we are and how we feel is dictated by factors other than our conscious mind. So it was Viktor Frankl who saw a different path. For those who don't know, he was a observer in one of the worst atrocities in mankind. He was a survivor of the Holocaust and a prisoner in Auschwitz. And what he noted was while the Nazis could take away all of people's physical possessions, as a therapist, they couldn't take away his mind 
and he began to use it to study the camp and the behaviors there. And he found a fundamental discovery that there were people in the camp who would be willing to give their last piece of bread and not necessarily look out for their own self-interest. They were few in number, but they were sufficient proof to say that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, which is the last of the human freedoms, and that's the ability to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. So what made the difference, what gave people the will to live, was the belief that they had a task to do, a mission to accomplish, that they had not yet completed, and it was waiting for them. And Frankel discovered that it didn't really matter what we expected from life. Certainly, no one in, the, in Auschwitz expected life to turn out the way it did. But the question is, what did life expect from us? And Frankel is able to help people discover their purpose in life, even under tremendous difficulties. The mental shift that's required to do this and that we use in cognitive behavioral therapy, which is discipline from Martin Seligman, another Jew, is the idea of reframing. Just as a painting can look different when placed in different frames, so can life. The facts don't change, but the way we perceive the facts do. And the way he was able, the way Viktor Frankl was able to survive Auschwitz was he imagined himself as a professor giving a lecture and he'd be transformed thinking about the psychology of the concentration camp and rising above the restrictions of his physical environment. Reframing tells us that though we cannot always change the circumstances in which we find ourselves, we can change the way we see them and this itself changes the way we feel. And if we go and connect this to this week's Parsha, Vayigash, we see that this modern concept was really a rediscovery of what's described by the, greatest ref the great reframer in our history, which was Joseph. Let's go through his, his life story. He was sold into slavery by his brothers, uh, in, lost his freedom for 13 years, separated by his, from his family for 22 years. After all that hardship, you could imagine resentment to his brothers and the desire for revenge. But yet he rose above those feelings and did precisely the opposite by shifting his experience into a different frame. And let's see what the text says. This is Genesis chapter 45, verse 4 through 8. I'm your brother, Joseph, whom he's, this is when he's, he first meets his brothers and he's identifying himself. I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold in Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And this is what he says a little later after his father Jacob dies and his brothers are concerned that he's going to take revenge on them now that his father's no longer around. This again is, this is Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 21. And he says, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Though you intended to do me harm, God intended it for good, 
in order to preserve a numerous people as he's doing today. So have no fear, I myself will provide for you and your little ones. So what is Joseph doing here? He's reframing his entire past. He's no longer seeing himself as a man who's wronged by his brothers. He looks at himself as a person who has a life-saving mission by God. And everything that happened to get him where he is was necessary so he could achieve his purpose in life. And what was that purpose? To save an entire nation from starvation during a famine and provide a safe haven for his family. And this act of reframing allows Joseph to live without any sense of anger and injustice. He certainly had a right to feel that way. But it allowed him, it gave him the space to forgive his brothers and be reconciled. And it transformed negative energies about the past into focused attention on the future. So, without explicitly stating it, Joseph really became the precursor to one of the great movements of psycho- in psychotherapy, which was the power of reframing, the recognition that we cannot change the past, but by changing the way we think about the past, we can change the future. So whatever situation we find ourselves in, we can reframe it. We can change our entire response, and that helps us give strength to survive, courage to persist, resilience to emerge, that on the far side of darkness, there's light and a new and better day. And I have to say, this is a very timely essay for me, because as I'm recording this, I just got news about the restrictions about going to Israel to travel, and I have a daughter there, so I'm eager to go with my family and visit her, and our whole plan got turned around, all our flights had to be canceled, we don't know if they'll open up the country in a couple weeks, and it's this uncertainty, and uh, it's uh, upsetting. And. I had to check myself about it a little bit because I was really, really looking forward to this trip. In fact, I was planning on spending three weeks in Israel. And as I thought about this, I realized in my entire professional working life, I've never spent three weeks away from work. So it's a tremendous opportunity for me and to be with my family in the Holy Land. So I was really over, overcome with, with, with sadness over the uncertainty about when I'll be able to go to Israel, if I'll be able to go. And, you know, as I was working in the emergency room, seeing lots of people who were in various states of declining health and dealing with their own challenges and physical crises, I realized the the need for me to check myself and realize, wait a minute, I'll get to Israel. I may not get on the timing that I want to get. I may have some inconveniences along the path. But I'm not going to get upset over it. First off, I can't control it. I didn't do anything to cause it. And it's, it's an inconvenience, but, it, but it's something that is salvageable and something that is temporary. And there's hope in the future that things will still turn out well. Perhaps not ideally, as I imagined, But who knows, maybe even better than I imagined because 
I'm yet to imagine it. So I think in one small way was a, made me aware of the fact that whenever we get down, let's look at the facts and realize we can't change the facts, but we can reframe how the facts affect us and most importantly, what are responses? Are we gonna take an optimistic approach? Are we gonna go half, glass half full? Or are we gonna wallow in the situation we find ourselves in? Because every day is a new day. Every month's a new month, every year's a new year. Every day we have a chance to transform ourselves. And seeing a lot of people in the emergency room, unfortunately I do see quite a number of people with mental illness and a common denominator, I would say, for the people I see who are recurrent visitors to the emergency room is a sense of victimhood. And they're not an actor taking charge of their life, but they're passive in allowing events to impact them and they're just responding. And I think that's what we have to avoid we have to seize an interpretation of our events that we can take agency with. And I think realizing that life is something we can't control is actually wrong. We can control life, why? Because we can control our response. And even in the depths of Auschwitz, Viktor Frankl recognized that the Nazis could take away every single thing that they owned Every behavior could be regimented, but the Nazis couldn't take away people's ability to try to do kindness, to respond to events in the way they want to respond and frame their circumstances while hard in the most positive way possible to help their fellow human being. So with that, have a great week.